Okay, if you want to join me in the book of Leviticus chapter 23 where we left off last time. We kind of just peered into the kind of verse 1 and 2. We just sort of snuck into it as we finished our last study together. So uh, tonight we're going to try and uh, take in the 23rd chapter. As obviously it kind of fits as a unit. It's a lengthy chapter, so uh, we'll try and give as much attention as possible, but still try and uh, encompass taking in the whole chapter uh, in one study here. Again, chapter 23 basically lists for us these seven annual feasts or festivals, uh, in their chronological sequence, how God gave them to the children of Israel to observe. Again, remember the book of Leviticus uh, is a book about the sacrifices as well as some of the laws and uh, uh, sort of ordinances that God gave to the people, how to live practically holy lives. And then it is a book about the feasts or these appointed times of celebration and worship that God instituted for the people of Israel to assemble together corporately with him and with one another as the people of God. And chapter 23 gives to us uh, really these seven annual feasts, as I said, in sequence, in their chronological order, how they would be observed. <clears throat> and really, they're sort of like, uh, in essence, you know, we have today what we call holidays. We just celebrated Christmas and New Year's and uh, we have even in our culture here uh, holidays, certainly to us as believers, there's some sacred and spiritual connotation to those things to us. Uh, but these really were sort of biblical vacation periods, biblical sacred holy days or holidays that God gave to the nation of Israel, times when they were to disconnect from their regular affairs, they were to uh, refrain from work, they were to assemble together with their families, their friends, with the people of God. And it's almost as if God gives to them here in Leviticus chapter 23, uh, his calendar and he says look as you're beginning I want you to set aside these seven times during the year I want you to put them on your appointment book write them onto your calendar and I'd like to have at least seven appointments with you throughout the year I'd like at least for seven times for you to detach from what you're doing to cease from work to sometimes it would be for a week long period other times it was just a special day of observance and worship and reflection but uh, here God requests of them uh, seven occasions when they would sort of pause and give God their attention and uh, sort of biblical holidays to rest, to reflect, to spend time with God in worship, to remember the Lord and to enjoy fellowship with one another. And as we look at these seven feasts or festivals, as we said last time, the first four feasts that we'll look at in the chapter, they all happened in the springtime. Those will be Passover and then unleavened bread secondarily and then the feast of first fruits and the feast of pentecost and then the latter three feasts are feasts that all take place in the fall or what we would refer to the the fall season uh, here and they will be the feast of trumpets we'll see we get to that in verse 23 then the day of atonement we'll see in verse 26 and then lastly the feast of tabernacles which is at the end of chapter beginning around verse 34 so look at me in verse 1 as it begins it says the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel and say to them the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be, notice, holy convocations. These are, God says, my feasts. So again, these annual gatherings, they're referred to, as we mentioned last time, just by way of reminder here, with a few terms God describes them. First of all, they're called feasts of the Lord. Uh, the term there is in the Hebrew literally indicates uh, appointed times, uh, designated occasions. So it's indicating here the connotation that these were established scheduled times, again, appointed times. They weren't, uh, you know, kind of with an arbitrary kind of, well, if it works out or you're interested, God said, no, these are designated times. Mark them on your calendar. I want you to observe. And he gives them specific times and dates to do such. They were times of appointment with God. And just like we have a daily 
I think we should anyway, a daily appointment with the Lord. Uh, there are occasions when I think it is a good thing. Whether, you know, in the church, we, we come together on Sunday mornings. We come together on Wednesday evenings. We sometimes, you know, have a, a time with the Lord at a men's retreat or a women's retreat. And there's just something good and healthy, I think, isn't it? We, we schedule everything else, especially as Americans, into our lives. Uh, and and people who well, I you know, I, w- I would spend time with the Lord, but I just you know I just can't find the time. Well, <laughs> let's change that. You, you you don't make the time. You know I, I I find that whatever is important to me or to anybody, uh, you don't find time. You make time. Everybody gets seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours in a day. Uh, Everybody gets the same amount of time. It's how we choose to spend what God allots to us that makes the complete difference. And that's why I think Jesus even said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things, which are important, yes, acquiring food and clothing and money, all the necessary responsibilities of life, you know, family life, job affairs, you know, they, they worked throughout the whole year. God wasn't calling the people to idleness or, or laziness, but, but there were times where the Lord said, look, but just schedule these things first and then build the rest of your calendar around that. And I think that's just good wisdom. You'll schedule me into your life first, I think the Lord would say, and then build the rest of your life and its calendar and affairs and activities around it from that point. The amazing thing is, is that if we do that and we prioritize the Lord first, have you not experienced, I know I have in my life and I've seen it in so many people's lives, that when you truly do prioritize the Lord first, how as Jesus promised, he adds things into your life. So what you typically would have to go chase after and work for and strive to obtain, the Lord honors when you prioritize him and he just adds things into your life. Whether it's adding time. So what might have took you two hours, the Lord says, well, because you prioritized me first and you gave me that portion of your time or your day, what would have took you two hours is only going to take you an hour now in this day. And he adds time back into your schedule or you know you, you give up an opportunity maybe to make a couple extra bucks in some uh, situation where you say yeah you know, i just i need to give some t-. so you give up the opportunity and the lord somehow adds that income or those resources back to your life and he just has an amazing way uh, of being able to do that so here he sets these feasts of the lord these appointed designated times he also calls them holy convocations here in verse two and the, that sort of in Applies two things. First of all, they were public gatherings. They were convocations, times when they assembled corporately. These weren't times to be alone, but to gather with the the congregation corporately, where they would worship as a group, where they would publicly come together and reflect upon the ways of God and offer sacrifices and worship, and there would be fellowship among them, spiritual encouragement as the people of God. But the word holy convocations also seems to have an implication also of rehearsals. Uh, And in essence, that's what these were. When we look at them, we'll see they were basically sacred rehearsals. They were, first of all, rehearsing literal things in the historical life of the nation of Israel, whether they were rehearsing and reflecting upon what happened at Passover or tabernacles as God preserved them through the wilderness. So they were rehearsing the things that God had done in their past and rejoicing and discussing those things with their children about how God preserved them in the wilderness or how God delivered them out of Egypt. So they would rehearse those things as a part of these festivals or convocations. But also, they were sort of dress rehearsals, and a dress rehearsal is when you rehearse something that you're yet to do. And they were also sacred dress rehearsals, as we'll see, because each one of these festivals or feasts also foreshadowed something that was yet to come in the life and the person of Christ, as all of the Old Testament so often does. It speaks of the person of Jesus in many different ways. That's why in verse 2, I think God also refers to them. Notice he calls them my feasts. He emphasizes these aren't just feasts for you. These aren't just holidays for you. God says they're my feasts. There was something very personal in the heart of Jehovah God 
about these feasts because from God's perspective, as he watched them observing Passover, it spoke to him of something he saw further down through history, and that is the shedding of the blood of his own son. And that sacrificial lamb that would die for the sins of the world, as many of these festivals and feasts, uh, God wanted their time and their worship and attention, but he also saw how they foreshadowed the person and the work and the the redemptive uh, activities of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 verse 16 and 17 declares this. It says, So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, Paul says, which are shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So from a New Testament perspective, Paul points this out, that the Sabbaths, the festivals, the observances in their religious calendar, he says these were shadows, pictures, types, foreshadowings of things to come. And he says, but the substance, the reality to those things, Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Pentecost, he said the substance, the weight and the reality would all be fulfilled and found in Christ. And we'll talk about that as we go through these things this evening. Look at me in verse 3. He begins, before he even gets into the seven festivals, to again reiterate the weekly sort of holy day, which was the Sabbath. We've talked a lot about it. He says, six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So again, we've talked a lot about the Sabbath. God instituted this pattern for the nation of Israel. It was a covenant we saw in the book of Exodus that God made specifically between himself and the nation of Israel that they would remember God's creative work. Remember, God created in six days, but the Bible tells us in Genesis, but on the seventh day, God rested or he ceased from his labors. And because of that, God instituted that same pattern for his chosen people, the nation of Israel, where six days they could do their work, they were to be uh, industrious, accomplish what they needed to, but one day in seventh, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, they were to cease from their works because God understands that life is about more than work and man needed to be able to recharge, to be rejuvenated physically, spiritually, and so often we get so preoccupied occupied working and hustling and doing things and God realizes but look if I let you to yourself he realized the people that they would never stop and take the time to just be rejuvenated and focus on what really matters which was their relationship with God and growing spiritually and developing and being strengthened spiritually so God set this into their pattern where one day in seventh uh, they were sort of on a weekly basis. They had a holy day. They were to refrain from work. They were to just spend time quietly with God, focusing on the things of God, learning of the Lord, enjoying fellowship as family and the people of God together as this commemorated God's pattern in creation. Uh, and again, prophetically, we know from the New Testament that the Sabbath had a prophetic picture as well because Hebrews 4 says to us that the Sabbath pictures are rest in Christ spiritually uh, that there it says that there is a rest for the people of God that that Sabbath was a picture of what Jesus became for us Jesus often called himself the Lord of the Sabbath in the Gospels and the Sabbath was a time where they would cease from their labors and spiritually in Christ he is our Sabbath we cease from work, we cease from our labors spiritually in Christ. Jesus said, come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he said, rest for your souls. And see, Jesus is our Sabbath because in Christ, I rest by faith in the finished work of Christ upon the cross of Calvary. I'm not laboring and working and trying to keep myself right with God I cease from those spiritual labors of works-related spirituality, and I rest in Christ. He fulfilled the works necessary. Jesus said in John chapter 6, this is the work of God that you believe upon the one whom the Father has sent. He said that because they asked him this question, what works should we do to do the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work, singular, belief. And we, that is the one thing God asks of us, just to, and so the Sabbath pictures, 
in a beautiful way how Christ becomes our Sabbath as Christians, as believers. Verse 4, Paul goes on, or excuse me, the book goes on to tell us here, these are the feasts of the Lord. Again, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim, God says, at their appointed times. And then we come to the first of these seven, verse 5. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So the first festival we come to was the observance in the spring of Passover. Uh, again, Passover was that time where they would basically reflect upon God's, remember, deliverance out of their bondage and slavery there in Egypt. We studied it back in the book of Exodus. It was to take place on the 14th day of the first month, often referred to as the month of Nizon, falls around our March April time frame uh, on our calendar and the time of Passover was when they remembered how God had delivered them out of Egypt remember as God was bringing the bringing the plagues there upon Egypt the last plague was the death of the firstborn and God told the children of Israel that they were remember to take a lamb and then they were to slay that lamb and to apply the blood to the doorposts and the lentils of their home and as the angel of death in a sense the wrath of God came through the land wherever the angel saw the blood of that sacrificial lamb that was applied over households he would pass over and the wrath of God and the death and the destruction would pass over those who by faith applied the blood of an innocent sacrifice a substitutional lamb uh, over their household and it was a picture of course of how God's wrath passed over because of the shedding of blood and how God then delivered them out of Egypt and out of that slavery and bondage and of course we realize as we look at all of that how that becomes a beautiful prophetic picture of how Jesus ultimately does that for you and I and as they would celebrate this annually each year and they would talk to their children about what God told them to do and they would go through the processes we studied in Exodus 12 how God instituted the Passover and they would go through the different uh, aspects of the Passover celebration on the 14th day of the first month it was something they did annually every year and they'd explain to their kids why they were doing it and why they were celebrating it and how God had delivered but again, as God is looking at this prophetically to the fulfillment of its ultimate completion, it pointed to what was fulfilled in the death and the sacrifice of Jesus, who is our deliverer, who the Bible says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He specifically says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So Paul there clearly indicates that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover as he came in his first coming and he sacrificed his life, he shed his blood. And when we by faith trust in Jesus as Christ shed blood and that is applied to our lives in a sense spiritually, the wrath of God passes over our lives and we are delivered out of a life of sin and bondage and slavery and brought into the new life that God intends for us. The second festival or feast would happen to begin, notice, right on the next day. And then on the 15th day of the month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And take note of that. Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the month. On the 15th day, the very next day, was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, now, this is why oftentimes when you get to the New Testament, you'll see in the Gospels and places where sometimes almost interchangeably they'll refer to Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread almost as the same thing. And the reason is, is because there was this direct connection. Many, in a sense, looked at it as Passover was the first part or the beginning or the onset of the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it began the exact same day. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, that they celebrated the Lord, notice this was seven days it lasted. You must eat unleavened bread, verse 6. And on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So again, they ceased from their works. It was a day of rest, a day of reflection, uh, a day to uh, worship God and, and reflect upon the things that God had done that they were commemorating. Verse 8, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord 
then for seven days, so every day they were to do that, and then the seventh day again was to be another holy convocation, and you shall do no customary work on it. Now, I love the fact that, that God said, hey, every once in a while, it's a holiday. Don't work and worship. I mean, it wouldn't be bad at all. I mean, you, you know, if your boss doesn't give you days, look, hey, God said it's a holy convocation. I'm not supposed to work. I'm supposed to worship. You know, for our workaholic American culture, this, this would uh, probably do us well, many of us. You know, shows you that God is interested in more than just work. Uh, many times we think that's the whole sole purpose of life is work and achieve and accomplish and goals. And uh, from God's perspective, you see his calendar is built around worship. Uh, it, it's built in a much different way. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long feast where they, in a sense, reflected upon how as God took them out of Egypt, remember, he told them to, to not put, what, leaven in their bread because there was no time for that process of the rising of the dough. They were, so they were to just take unleavened bread because they would go out with haste. They would be delivered quickly. So as they remembered God's instruction and that deliverance, in a sense, they were to remove leaven from their typical baking processes in their bread. They were to leave it behind and there was no leaven to be found in their bread uh, at that time. Now, we know that ultimately in the Bible, we begin to see that leaven becomes a type of sin or a picture of sin because leaven has, a, in a sense, a putrefying effect. It causes the bread to rise basically through putrefication and it spreads and it becomes a very good picture and a type of how sin has similar effects in a person's life. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in a sense, its fulfillment prophetically, two very possible ideas, both of them relating to fulfillment in Christ. Some see the Feast of Unleavened Bread as being fulfilled in the sinless life of Christ, that Christ, our Passover, who was sacrificed, was also sinless. He was without leaven. There was no leaven, no sin, no defilement in Christ. He was a sinless sacrifice and substitute for us. So some see the sinless nature of Christ in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, it's possible also that this is an indication of how in Jesus, once we've been saved and we've had the Passover experience, deliverance out of our old life of slavery and bondage, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread in other ways is pictured as the person in Christ should now remove leaven or sin practically in the way they begin to then live out their life. It's interesting, this comes after Passover. First the Passover and deliverance, then the eradication of leaven or sin, you could say, is the result of salvation. We leave leaven behind. We leave sin behind. Now, Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 5 by saying this. Listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He then says, verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in the same way that they were to leave behind leaven, as the result of their Passover experience, Christians, one of the marks of a Christian after we're saved, an indication that we truly are saved is that now practically we should leave behind a life of sin. And say, so, okay, I'm done with sin now. I want to live a life of repentance. I want to leave behind that old leavened lifestyle and I want to live now a life where I leave sin behind. And I want to, in the same way I've been made clean and pure and forgiven of my sin, I want to practically now live that out. I want to remove and eradicate sin from my life. So potentially is a indication of that as well. The third feast we find beginning in verse 9, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I will give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it and you shall offer on that day when you have waved the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil 
an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen, and you shall eat, verse 14, neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God, and it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations." in all your dwellings. So verse 9 through 14 give to us now the record of the third feast or third festival called the feast uh, of first fruits we take notice of here mentioned in verse 10 there and basically the purpose of the feast of first fruits was to celebrate the beginning of the barley harvest it would be too early at this point for wheat this is the springtime still so this would be the celebration of the beginning of the barley harvest and what they would basically do as you can read there in verses specifically 10 and 11 it's being described how the priest would take one of the first uh, stalks of, of the barley harvest early on and he would bring it into uh, the presence of, of, of God and he would wave it before the Lord as in a sense an appreciative way of commemorating Lord you have brought the first fruits of this harvest and you will bring then the harvest yet still to come afterwards and it was a way of appreciating and thanking God and giving to God the first fruits of what was yet still to come expectantly as an act of worship. And of course, there were some sacrifices and other aspects involved in this as they worshiped and just paused and reflected upon God's provision for them in this way. Now, prophetically, this seems to be an indication of being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the same way Passover is a fulfillment of the death of Christ, it seems that first fruits was fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. Again, take notice in verse 11 that this was to be observed the day after the Sabbath. Now, what's the day after Sabbath? Would be what on the calendar? Would be Sunday. The day after Sabbath. Now, many believe that what this is indicating is that this would then be the 16th day of the month as these feasts were stacked together, these first three with no break, that what this is a reference to is, again, Christ died, we know when, on the Passover. The Bible tells us that in the Gospels, that Christ fulfilled the Passover as the Passover lamb and he actually died on the Passover. And then Jesus rose on the day after the Sabbath, which would be Sunday, the day of resurrection. So many see the Feast of First Fruits that Christ fulfilled that in his resurrection. It's interesting, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 declares this, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died, the idea is. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So what's being described there basically in essence is, is Paul is recognizing that Jesus having risen out from among the dead, he is the firstfruits of what we will all experience as followers of Christ and because his spirit is now within us and in the same way we shall one day experience a resurrection and receive a glorified eternal body like Christ and Paul's referring to that there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So again, just this amazing thing as you look at these first uh, few feasts here kind of stacked together picturing you know the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and then it seems there's sort of a, a gap of time there and then as you come to verse 15, you'll notice there's been about a 50-day gap now between the onset of the Feast of First Fruits. We come to this fourth festival, which would be the Feast of Pentecost, verse 15. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. So that would in essence be seven weeks or 49 days. Count 50 days, so the next day after, to the day after that seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. So two loaves of bread were involved in that. Take note of some of these keys here, two loaves of bread. 
They shall be of fine flour and they shall be baked. I have this underlined. Notice baked with leaven. So there's two loaves of bread involved here. And here they were to purposely put leaven into the loaves that were a part of this celebration. These are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. And they shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and drink offerings made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. And you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall then wave the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. We talked before about the wave offering horizontally and then vertically, much like the picture of the cross. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it's a holy convocation. Again, verse 21, you shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. And then he interestingly adds in here in the midst of this. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. Nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now we talked, verse 22 there, a little bit about this statute or law that God put in in some of our prior chapters. It's interesting that somehow this is inserted in to the midst of this description of the Feast of Pentecost. But again, trying to give you sort of a summary cursory understanding. The Feast of Pentecost celebrated 50 days. Again, they would count off 50 days after first fruits when this would be celebrated. And again, remember, Pentecost is one of the three mandatory feasts that all Jewish males, we'll see later, were required to attend. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Out of the seven, it was required. I mean, it was an absolute requirement that Jewish males came to worship God in Jerusalem for these particular feasts. But the Passover, or excuse me, Pentecost, basically this celebration... Uh, was observed uh, and really it celebrated the beginning of what would be considered for the Jews the wheat harvest being a little further along at this point now you're now going into around the summer time frame 50 days out from first fruits so that would be the summer crop and notice it, that was a long harvest period uh, because the next feast won't be until the seventh month so there's this long extended time of harvest and gleaning and as we said, a couple of key factors here as we think about what this prophetically speaks of, uh, it involved two loaves of bread. That's interesting. And the bread also was purposely to have the inclusion of leaven. Now, if you're familiar with Acts chapter 2 or you want to jot that in your notes here, we know that in Acts chapter 2, what took place on what? Pentecost was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and basically what we would call the birth of the church. Remember it says that for 40 days uh, after uh, Jesus' resurrection, the Bible tells us, he went around speaking about the kingdom of God. Remember he was appearing and then disappearing and he'd show up in the rooms and, and, and he was just kind of stepping through walls and he was reminding the disciples, even though you don't see me with your eye anymore, I'm still alive. Just because you don't see me in the flesh anymore doesn't mean I'm not in your midst. I mean, but, but imagine what that would be like. You know, here we are worshiping, having a Bible study. Then all of a sudden, Jesus just you know, stepped. All of a sudden, he just appeared in our midst. And he said, peace be with him. We would all be kind of surprised. But I think he was teaching the disciples how to live by faith and to realize, look, just because you don't see me with your natural eye doesn't mean I'm not in your midst. I'm always in your midst and I'm alive still. And I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm aware of what's going on in your meeting. And I think it's a good reminder for us to realize Jesus said whenever two or three gather in my name, I am in the midst. Jesus shows up to every meeting when more than one person assembles together. He graces it with his presence. And, and Acts chapter 2 tells us that when the day of Pentecost, that 50-day mark out came, when the day of Pentecost came, when it had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And then remember, we read in Acts 2 of the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the believers that were assembled together there and what we call the birth or the inception of the church. So Pentecost found its fulfillment 
in Jesus's giving the promise that he spoke to about, I will give you another helper. And Jesus spoke of the coming of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church. And Pentecost was fulfilled when Jesus honored his promise and poured out his spirit upon the church and the birth of the church happened. Now, here's why I say it's interesting. Remember that whole thing about the two loaves? This feast involved the feast of Pentecost, two loaves. What is the church? In essence, it's what? Jew and Gentile together as one because of Christ. What also was involved? They were to incorporate purposely leaven. What's leaven? A picture, a type of sin. And what is the church made of? Jewish and Gentile sinners that are all full of leaven, even though we're saved by grace, and we're forgiven of our We're a bunch of sinners saved by grace, made one in Christ. And there's, there's always still the presence of leaven among the church because we're sinners and we still sail. So, uh, still sail. <laughs> I guess you sail on one of these holidays. Uh, but we still fail all the time. So there's the presence of sin in our midst. And so interesting that leaven was a part of this. And again, because God saw what it would, uh, in a sense, represent. And also, I think this is where we're still at. I, I think, in a sense, if you want to say historically, again, not trying to read too much or torture what the text uh, says and, and, and for something. But if you want to look at where we're at spiritually, chronologically, I think this is where we're at. We are in a season where Pentecost has happened, and this is harvest time. Jesus said, open up your eyes. The fields are white unto harvest. And this is a harvest time. Remember again, back in verse 22 there, God incorporates this little reminder about how they were to harvest their land and to reap the corners. And he talks about gleanings. I think this is because in God's heart, God, that's what God sees as the result of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit and the onset of the church, this is the season historically that we're in right now. This is a season of harvest where God's saving people. He's gleaning souls. He's harvesting Jew and Gentile, saving and redeeming people. And God wants us as his representatives to go out into the harvest fields and to glean his harvest and to be used by him to bring souls into the kingdom. We're in harvest time. That's what this season is. This is the season of Jesus' harvest as souls are being saved before his second coming. Now, the first four festivals, notice how they all correlate to being fulfilled in Jesus' first coming and in succession as well, chronologically in succession. They all refer to Christ. That just makes it very interesting to me because I have to then wonder, well, I wonder what the case will be with the next three festivals. If the first four all found their fulfillment in Christ and in succession, I wonder then what the next three will involve. I can only wonder if perhaps it's very possible that they'll find their succession and fulfillment in the things of Christ as well in regards to his second coming as his second advent happens and he returns to the earth. So let's look at them here together. Verse 24, we now come to these last three festivals or feasts which all would happen in the time of the fall the first one is we see here the feast of trumpets verse 24 speak to the children of israel saying in the seventh month that would be the fall like our october november time frame uh, the time of often what they call the month of tisri in the seventh month, on the first day of that seventh month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, again, another time to break from work, and a memorial or commemorative blowing of the trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So here, verse 24 and 25, we have reference to what's called the Feast of Trumpets. It's often referred to as Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and this, at this point for the Jews, in many ways, is sort of like, best way I can illustrate, it's like their New Year's Day celebration. Uh, you know, we, on, we just went through a New Year. People do what? They blow horns and noisemakers and they celebrate Happy New Year. And this is really what this was for the Jews. This commemorative blowing of the trumpet in the seventh month, it was the beginning really of what they considered uh, their, their most religious month on the calendar because it also included the Day of Atonement, 
when the sins of the nation were atoned for by the high priest one time a year. So this was like their blow, they would blow the shofar or the ram's horn in a commemorative way to kind of celebrate the onset of what they saw as their new year. Now prophetically, I think that this somehow will be fulfilled in the rapture. Uh, because the Bible tells us regarding the rapture, the, the, the catching away of the saints, which will also connect with the regathering of Israel and God beginning to work among them again afterwards in the time of the tribulation. It tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will ride first. We who are alive and remain shall caught up together uh, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.52, Paul says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. So again, what that trump of God is going to be, how it's going to happen, I don't know, but I know I'm going to hear it. <laughs> and if you know Jesus, I promise you that you will hear it as well. And the Bible says when that trumpet blasts and there's a shout, and I don't know what the shout is, maybe get out of here, you know, or come on home. Uh, we're going to be called up to meet the Lord in the air uh, and be in the Lord's presence forever. Now, interesting, Matthew 24 uh, around verses 29 to 31, also describe how in the time immediately after the tribulation period, that in the midst of that, there will also be a trumpet in some way blown, and it says God will gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. There will also be a regathering of Israel as God begins in that what we call 70th week of Daniel, one more seven-year period where God will work specifically and uniquely with Israel as he regathers them and begins to work powerfully by his spirit among them. And I think that will find its fulfillment in a sense as a part of this too. So I think the Feast of, uh, Feast of Trumpets will have its fulfillment in connection to the rapture of the church and the regathering of Israel. Verse 27, also then on the 10th day of that seventh month shall be the day of atonement. Uh, we saw that back in Leviticus 16. It shall be a holy convocation for you. On that day, remember, they were to afflict their souls and an, make an offering made by fire to the Lord. And they were to do no work on that day, for it's the day of atonement, to make atonement before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not work... On that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. So God was very serious uh, when he says, take a break. It's important to take a break. Verse 31, you shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. And it shall be to you a Sabbath, again, of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So again, this the Day of Atonement. We talked about this in depth back in Leviticus chapter 16. This was that time, remember, where one time a year, one day a year, the high priest alone with the blood of an innocent sacrifice would go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies where the Ark uh, was and he would apply the blood there on what we often call the mercy seat to make atonement nationally for the sins of the people of Israel. And one time a year he could go in one man with the blood of an innocent sacrifice and he would make atonement. And the people on that day, notice, it says they were to afflict their souls. That is, it was a day of national repentance. It was a, to be a day of confession and repentance as the priest was making atonement for their sins in a way they could not make atonement for their sins. They were making no atonement for their sins. They can't make atonement for their sins without the shedding of blood. God says there is no forgiveness. So they knew that they could confess their sins. They knew they could repent and have a repentant heart and acknowledge their sins. But someone else, a mediator, a priest, with the shed blood of an innocent substitute was making the atonement for their sins. Again, atonement, think of at one Through that blood, they were being made, able to be made one with God in the presence of God again. But this was celebrated uh, on that day. 
And as you look at the Day of Atonement, I think prophetically, again, if we're sticking with these things being fulfilled in Christ in his first and second coming, I think prophetically the Day of Atonement is somehow going to find its fulfillment in the Jews recognizing Jesus as their Messiah. Uh, Because again, as it was a day that they were mourning and afflicting their souls over their sin and forgiveness was being addressed, listen to what Zechariah describes regarding what will happen with the Jews in the latter days. Zechariah 12 says, It shall be in that day that I'll seek to destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. And God said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Listen, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. And yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And then Zechariah 13 verse 1 says, And in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So see, the Bible says there's coming a time where the Jews who rejected Christ at his first coming as their Messiah and Savior, there's coming a time where the Bible says there's the Spirit of God is going to be poured out upon the people of Israel and they are going to look upon, God says, me whom they have, interesting, pierced and it says they're going to mourn they're going to grieve and and because the grief is going to be over oh my goodness you were the messiah you were dying for us we were we were blaspheming you we were participating in saying crucify him crucify and they will mourn over the, the 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 gravity of their sin and what they did to christ and, and But as they recognize who Jesus is, then a fountain of forgiveness will begin to flow as they accept the forgiveness of Christ and they will realize Jesus as their Messiah. And in this powerful way, thousands and, and, and multitudes of Jews will recognize Christ and salvation will be happening among Israel in a powerful way throughout that period even of the seven years of the tribulation. Well, lastly, we want to look quickly before we wrap up at the feast then of tabernacles, the seventh and final festival described from verse 34 down through verse 43. And let me read it and then we'll make a few comments regarding this. It says, speak to the children of Israel on the 15th day of the seventh month. Still, again, it's a fall festival. You shall celebrate the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And on the first day, it shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. So again, it began on a Sabbath. This was a week-long feast again. For seven days, they were to make offerings by fire uh, to the Lord. A holy convocations and offer fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, verse 36. You shall do no customary work on it. Now, verse 37 and 38 are almost sort of parenthetical Uh, reminders here to celebrate the feast. If you look with me in verse 39, it comes back to describing specifically tabernacles. It says also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the fruit of your land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. On the eighth day, the latter half of the week, you shall also have another Sabbath rest. So from Sabbath to Sabbath, you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Verse 42, here's what they would do. You shall dwell in booths. That's what these branches from verse 40 were for. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israel shall dwell in booths that the generations, that is your children, may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the Feast of Tabernacles was that annual feast where they commemorated God's preservation during their wilderness wanderings uh, as they basically celebrated how for 40 years, and we'll see this as we get further along, how for 40 years, remember, despite their disobedience, it should have been a quick wilderness wandering. 
But because of their unbelief, God left them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. But it says that their shoes never wore out, their feet never swelled, their clothes. And for 40 years, we'll see, God miraculously sustained them. How? By his presence. The presence of the Lord was what sustained them because he was with them. Even in their imperfection. He was with them and his presence is what preserved and sustained them as they lived, in a sense, under the stars for 40 years in the wilderness. God took care of them. And that's why they would go live outside for a week. If they had physical dwellings, they would go outside and make little temporary lean-tos and boos and they would sleep under the stars. And as the kids and I would say, Dad, why did we move, why did we move outside and why are we out here? Can't we go back? Why are we out here for this week? And well, the reason why, son, is because for 40 years... Our God sustained our fathers under the stars, in the desert, in the wilderness, and he took care of them with very little. And his presence did miracles and fed us and gave us manna and water from the rock and, and helped us and sustained us for 40 years by his presence with us. He and they would commemorate God's preservation during the wilderness wanderings. Now, I think that the Feast of Tabernacles speaks of what will ultimately find its fulfillment uh, again in Jesus' second coming because, again, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of, again, God tabernacling or dwelling among them. And when Jesus comes back the second time to this earth, what happens? The church is raptured first. For seven years, the tribulation is happening on this earth. God's working among Israel. But then at the end of those seven years, the Bible says the second coming of Christ, you and I return with him. And Jesus does what? He sets up his throne on this earth. And he literally rules and reigns. And his presence is again dwelling among us. He's tabernacling or dwelling in our midst. And for a thousand years, Christ will rule and reign in our midst and will be among us. And it will be the presence of Christ on this earth during the kingdom age, that thousand year millennial reign, where the presence of Christ will do incredible things on this earth as he is here in our midst. And even interesting, you might want to jot your notes. We need to wrap up and time doesn't permit, but write your notes as well. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 7. Because even after the kingdom age, when the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the new Jerusalem comes down for, from heaven and we enter into what we would just consider eternity future or forever, you know, heavenly experience after the kingdom age with God. It's interesting that in those verses, it says this, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, they shall be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And again, it will be the presence of God with his people in our midst that will address every need, every desire, every situation and again, as we look at these feasts and as we prepare to enter back into a, a time of just being in the presence of the Lord, you know, if nothing else, the Spirit of God speaks to us as these observances were taking place. Let it speak to us this. Life is more than work. God prescribed rest. God prescribed and purposely told them, listen, life's more than just work. It's more than just making money and accomplishing tasks and getting promotions and acquiring stuff and feeling the prestige of achievement or getting the promotion. God, look, it's more than work. Life's about worship. It's about spending time with God. It's about prioritizing God and enjoying God's presence and engaging God and experiencing God and experiencing the blessings of relationships with other human beings that God has also put into our life as family and friends and fellow children of God. That's what life's about. Life's about encountering God and worshiping God. 